Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I'll be going. I'll be continuing my look at the works of, of Thomas Jefferson. We're actually almost through the the kind of assorted material. Almost half of this volume by the Library of America, uh, put together by them, anyways, uh, is is makes up of his letters, and his letters are actually quite quite interesting i think and a little bit more interesting than some of his public papers and, and public speeches i mean those are good at getting kind of an overview of of jefferson's political career and his you know and the kinds of public statements he made um but you know i really found a lot of richness in the letters so i'm excited to get to talking about those but we still have a few of his kind of public stuff to get through um in this episode we'll just be looking at his speeches and this particular collection doesn't have that many it's it's actually only maybe 80 pages or so of, of material. Um, most of them come from his presidency, in fact. He, uh, all except one of them, yeah, only, well, two of them uh, predate. One is uh, from 1790, which is an address to the people of Albemarle County, which is his his home county. And the, then there's one he gave in 1809, which is, yeah, April 3rd, which was kind of like a retirement speech to the same people. And it's kind of nice that the collection pairs these. The rest are various speeches he gave while president and his annual messages to, to Congress, which he didn't give in person. So they're, they're not really speeches. They're actually his annual messages. You know, obviously, we call these now the State of the Union addresses. Um, at the time, they weren't called that. Um, now, Washington and Adams did interpret the, that that line in the Constitution that says the president will, from time to time, you know, report on the State of the Union to the to Congress. They took that literally as a speech. Jefferson, though, he, for whatever reason, I, I think for him it was a little bit too regal, maybe. He just sent a, a letter to them. So we have some of his annual messages, not all of them, not all eight. I think there's four of them or three or four of them. And they mostly deal with the issues of the of the time, you know, what he was dealing with in his presidency, and they're very basic. Some of them do give recommendations for policy, though, and I think that's uh, significant, that he's not just reporting on the State of the Union, he's doing what presidents, of course, now do when they go in front and, and give their speech, uh, is, is actually recommend that Congress take certain actions. Um, but again, if you if you know anything about Jefferson's presidency, if you've taken your regular college history course or even a high school history course, you've heard of this stuff. You know things like the Barbary pirates, or the um, what else is there? The, the Louisiana Purchase, Lewis and Clark expedition. These things are all mentioned in these speeches and addresses. The most interesting thing here, though, are the five Indian addresses. I don't know if Jefferson gave more of these, but these, there's only five collected here. And these are various speeches. Actually, sorry, I was wrong. One of these actually was during the Revolution, but four of them were given during his presidency to to people who you know, came to visit in Washington. So it's kind of Indian diplomacy as such. But what he says about his views about what path forward the Indians should, should take is, is very interesting. So I might have more to say about that than the, than the regular speeches. So let me very quickly just let you know which uh, what's most interesting, I think, in some of these uh, these annual addresses and messages, which mostly I think they're, you know, they can be kind of skimmed through. 
but really jump to really what I want to talk about, which is essentially the diplomacy of empire that Jefferson is engaged in. I think that's, that's really key here. Well, the first of our speeches is the responses to the citizens of Albemarle. And this is just such a wonderful kind of conversation about, about republicanism. Um, and there's a lot of optimism about republicanism, too. You know, um, you see, I, I've been teaching in China lately. And one, whenever, when I was I'm recently talking about the French Revolution and the American Revolution as part of a world history course, and one response I've gotten from, from students are things like, well, you know, what if the people are stupid? I, I mean, I've had students say that directly to me. You know, that essentially saying people are too stupid to, to really have democracy. And they might kick, say it in different ways, but I've heard that three or four times from, from different students, the more vocal ones. Um, and, you know, I feel like asking, you know, well, do you think you're too stupid for democracy? Or are you really talking about another group of people, right? Of people who, who maybe don't have certain qualities. And this is the tension that existed, I think, it's not just something that exists in, in an authoritarian state. It exists in in early Republican America too, this, this idea that there's a certain class of citizens who need to make decisions uh, essentially on behalf of others, right? That there's the betters of society, the virtuous people in society are the ones who should, should rule, the people with property, right? Of course, at these, in these days, you had property requirements for voting. This is before full white uh, male suffrage. So if you didn't have property, you maybe couldn't vote didn't have a say, you couldn't run for office. Uh, there was even an issue, I think it was in Jefferson's Constitution for Virginia, where there wasn't a salary for, for public officials. And it, you, you hear this even now in public debate, like when Congress is, is default, dysfunctional, people say, well, they shouldn't get paid. Well, the downside of that, of course, is if you don't pay these people, whatever the salary for a congressperson is, it's, it's not a huge salary, but it's not insignificant either. If you don't pay them, they're not. No one's going to run for that office, right? Or, or at least only the rich will run, and only the rich would be able to serve. Uh, the only reason we can have people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez even thinking about running for for Congress is because there's a salary associated with it, by which they can pay their staff and and, and you know you know fund their life in in, in Washington. So uh, there's a bit of anxiety about. In, in this day is about just who should be making decisions for others. But in this statement, Jefferson's being a little bit more democratic, actually, and saying we're all kind of, kind of, uh, we're sort of all in this together. At the same time, though, he is talking as someone who's going to be representing the people of this, of this county. He says, we have been fellow laborers and fellow sufferers, sufferers, and heaven has rewarded us with a happy issue from our struggles. It rests now in ourselves alone to enjoy in peace and concord the blessings of self-government so long denied to mankind, to show by example the sufficiency of human reason for the care of human affairs, and that the will of the majority, the natural law of every society, is the only sure guardian of the rights of man. Perhaps even this may sometimes err, but its errors are honest, solitary, and short-lived." You know, I wish I would have had this, this quote uh, in memory when, I, when students asked me about that, because you know, there's, I don't know, like, I think the assumption that my student was Students were, were giving us somehow that mistakes are unacceptable in in government, or it's you know it's not something that can be faced and learned from, which which is a bit troubling, obviously, right? Because of course the technocrats, the elite, they make mistakes, but if they control the means of communication in society, they of course don't advertise those. They they don't make those um, very well known. 
Um, and after that, we jump to the presidential addresses, which there's a lot. I'm just going to uh, really skim through these quickly because none of them really jumped out as really exciting to me. The first inaugural address, um, you know, it's, it's after the first major transition in, in, in between parties in the United States. Uh, you know, the first two presidents were of the Federalist faction, Washington associated with the Federalists, even though I think he didn't, I mean, didn't, wasn't an official party person. By the time Adams was president, though, the country was breaking up into these, this Federalist, Federalist kind of Hamiltonian party, and then the Jeffersonian party. And a lot of uh, what we see in these documents are, you know, especially the Secretary of State stuff that we talked about uh, and looked at the last episode, had a lot to do with the, the growing tension between these factions, things that, you know, Washington wasn't aware of. He just chose Jefferson to be Secretary of State because he thought he was qualified didn't know he was bringing in basically a lot of antagonism into his administration. But this had this this inaugural has some of the kind of the revolutionary spirit, like we're really bringing something new to to government, but also the kind of reconciliation speech you often hear in a transitional uh, speech, right? Like, you know, a bit of respect, but now we had a tough campaign, but we're going to come together, right? We've heard that before from presidential inaugural addresses or victory speeches. You know, we got to move on as one united nation. There's a bit of that, but there's also this really clear demonstration of Republican principles in this speech. He says things like, uh, quote, I will compress them, the government, within the narrowest compass that they will bear, starting with the general principle, but not all its limitations. Equal and exact justice to all men of whatever state or persuasion, religious or political, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none, the support of the state government on all their rights as the most common administrations for our domestic concerns and the surest bulwarks against anti-Republican tendencies. The preservation of the general government and its whole constitutional figure and the sheer sheet anchor of our peace at home and safety abroad. End quote. And it's a lot of that. Just the whole focus of the Jeffersonian Republican movement of, of 1800, right? It's, I guess states' rights, although I, I kind of really don't like that term, the way it gets associated with the Confederacy. But uh, that's certainly part of part of that, but also kind of the strict constitutional framework of government, limited powers and all that. Um, I did when I was reading these, I did glance at budgets because I was reading these annual uh, addresses that he made. I looked at the budgets and, and he did cut the budget of the federal government. You can see that. And, and you know, it wasn't quite so grandiose. This was the time it was moving to, to Washington, too. You'd expect increased spending, but actually he, he declined spending quite a lot, sort of paying off the, the national debt and things like that. So when you go and read like Henry Adams, which maybe we'll get to it someday, his two volume, at least it's two volumes of the Library of America edition, it's a huge, his history of the Jefferson and, and Madison presidencies, right? The main thesis there is something you commonly hear in, in history classes is that Jefferson started out with this kind of limited government agenda and then you know by the end of his presidency he's kind of overreached the constitution right the big evidence of that would be things like the, the war against the barbary pirates the what the, the the louisiana purchase right the embargo acts these things that did seem to be expressions of, of federal power but actually the budget stayed pretty low even through the madison years as a percentage of, of GD, gdp as for the first annual message this was delivered and it was delivered in, in paper form to Congress on December 8th, 1801. So this would be you know, seven, eight months after he um, 
took office. I'm, I'm not sure what the lame duck period was in Jefferson's days. It's, it was longer than it is now, obviously. It wasn't until, I think even in the early 20th century, the lame duck period is to extend at least until March or April. If you think of like the 100 days with Roosevelt, they, they didn't begin with 1932. It was early, in it. it was like March or April of 33 that that begins. I think it was the same with that case. So he had been there a while. And uh, yeah, so, but it was in December, around the same time as uh, State of the Unions are given these days. Um, talks about the Barbary Pirates, he talks about a lot of other things, but he does make a recommendation to Congress to pursue a legal change, and that is on the subject of naturalization, of citizenship. And uh, what he says here is, is the United States should be more open to, to, to foreigners, essentially, which is in contrast to something he said in notes on, on the state of Virginia, where he actually suggests Virginia doesn't need these immigrants and that immigrant, immigrants might change the character of, of the state and its culture, um, which of course is a common line by, by nationalists against, against immigrants. Here he's much more generous and he thinks there has to be greater openness. I think partially this is political because a lot of the people fleeing Europe at the time, fleeing uh, conservative regimes, especially like in Ireland, you know, they were tending to be Republicans and they tended to support his his party. And so he was looking for political support, certainly. But still, as a general principle, I think we can learn something from it. Quote, considering the ordinary chances of human life, the denial of citizenship under the residence of 14 years is a denial to a great proportion of those who ask it and controls a policy pursued from the first settlement by many of the states and still believed of consequence to their prosperity. And shall we refuse the unhappy fugitives from distress that hospitality which the savages of the wilderness extended to our fathers in arriving in this land? Shall oppress humanity find no asylum on this globe? The Constitution indeed has widely provided that for admission to certain offices of important trust, our residents shall be required sufficient to develop character and design. But might not the general character and capacity of a citizen be safely communicated to everyone manifesting a bona fide purpose of embarking his life and fortunes permanently with us? with restrictions, perhaps, to guard against fraudulent usurpations of our flag, abuse of which brings so many embarrassments and loss on genuine citizens, and so much danger to the nation of being involved in war, that no endeavor should be spared to detect and suppress it." And so his overall point is we need to liberalize the, the naturalization laws to get more of those recent immigrants, make them US citizens. Now, several of these annual messages deal with issues like like that come out of the Louisiana Purchase, right? Like first, the question of whether that was a constitutional act was something that's addressed in one of these. He did it anyways, of course, but then he talked about the funding for it. The Lewis and Clark expedition and its return and what they find is talked about in one of the annual addresses. Another thing that's very important here for getting to what I want to talk about later with, with the Indians is Jefferson's conversations about to Congress about Indian land purchases. And we'll just look at one of these briefly because it, we're just reminded of, of, of how much of what the federal government was doing in the, these days really was empire building. That's not just the Louisiana Purchase and, and, and acquiring that land. And it's, it's actually pretty actively, you know, taking this land from, from Indians through through purchases. And this is an issue he's going to bring up with when he talks to the Indians in his Indian addresses. He says, this is in the third annual message, the friendly tribe of Kazakh, Kazakh, 
uh, Saki Indians, with whom we had never had a few difference, uh, difference, reduced by the wars and the wants of savage life to a few individuals unable to defend themselves against the neighboring tribes, have transferred its country to the United States, reserving only for its members what is sufficient to maintain them in an agricultural way. The considerations stipulated are that we shall extend to them our patronage and protection and give them certain aids in money and implements in agriculture and other articles of their choice. The country, among the most fertile within our limits, extending along the Mississippi from the north of the Illinois up to the Ohio, though not so necessary as a barrier since the acquisition of the other bank, may yet be worthy of being laid open to immediate settlement as its inhabitants may descend with rapid rapidity in support of the lower country should furnish circumstances expose them to foreign enterprise. And there's other passages that kind of talk about this. Um, now what's the problem here is we know Jefferson's attitudes towards slavery were conflicted. We know he was a major slaveholder. We know he had sexual relations, his sex life after the de death of his wife largely or exclusively as far as we know revolved around uh, Sally Hemings, one of his slaves. Uh, yet at the same time, he thought slavery was, was no good for the United States. His solution to that was not uh, interracial republic, but rather some design to export uh, emancipated slaves outside of the country. Um, that said, what was the end result of things like the Louisiana Purchase and the purchasing of this land in the lower Mississippi Valley of of eventually Indian removal by, by Jackson, which of course is the end result of, of some of these things that Jefferson is, I don't know if he's starting, but at least continuing from the previous administration. The result of that, of course, is going to be the migration of, of, of whites and their slaves to the lower Mississippi, to Alabama, to Mississippi, to these regions, which is not only going to ensure slavery survival, but actually lead to the expansion of slavery, to such a point that in 1860, the United States would be the largest slave power in, in the United States. I, that certainly, w I don't think, was his intention, but uh, I wonder if in the back of his head, and I'll think about this when I look at his letters, did he realize that this land was going to be you know, controlled by, by slave owners, and that, that land was going to be in the grip of an aristocracy for, for decades after, after Jefferson died? It is almost as if we, we could say with maybe uh, a little qualification and concern, but I think it can almost be stated that one of the, the blowbacks of, of Jefferson's and Madison's and these other early presidents' imperial ambitions in the West, from Appalachia to the Mississippi to, to the Pacific eventually, was, was the, the sectional crisis and the deepening of, of this divisive institution within the United States. Well, one half of at least one part of Jefferson's Indian policy was, was buying up land and kind of putting the remainders of, of the Indians into you know, some kind of protectorate, as we just saw in the third annual address. We see in the eighth annual address a more bold proposal to kind of assimilate, incorporate, and kind of bring these into almost citizenship, right? And unlike African Americans, unlike uh, emancipated slaves, who Jefferson did not think could have a part in the Republic, he didn't seem to hold that for, for Indians who he really thought could be civilized um, and, and kind of even become, become citizens. And that's going to be a main issue of, of some of his uh, Indian addresses. So we see in the eighth annual message, the eighth annual report, 
uh, after he's done talking about the Barbary pirates, which comes up in all of these, it was a, of course a long-standing kind of war on terror. And there, there was a book written, a, you know, a number of years ago, on kind of America's first war on terror, about the Barbary pirates. Um, you know, the first kind of foreign adventure of of the United States. But in here, he's got a pretty long section where he talks about the Creek and the Choctaw and the, the Cherokee. These are the groups that are eventually going to be called like the civilized tribes. You know, some of them, the Cherokee would produce a written language. They'd write a constitution. Many of them had slaves, uh, which is all kind of ironic because despite all of that, you know, they eventually were removed by, by Jackson, a very different policy than Jefferson's. But um, at the end of the day, you know, both, I, I'm kind of suggesting here, were part of this push to to Americanize this frontier. For Jefferson, it was more about making these, these people citizens, um, farmers, and for Jackson, of course, it was removal. So he kind of begins this conversation talking about uh, kind of violence on the frontier and the role of Indians in apprehending and punishing criminals among their own communities or things like that. And he, he writes, beyond the uh, Mississippi, the Ohio's and the Sacks and the Alabamas have delivered up for trial and punishment individuals from among themselves accused of murdering citizens of the United States. On this side of the Mississippi, the Creeks are exerting themselves to arrest offenders of the same kind. And the Choctaws have manifested their readiness and desire for amicable and just arrangements respecting degradations committed by disorderly persons of their tribe. And generally from a conviction that we consider them a part of ourselves and cherish with sincerity their rights and interests, the attachment of the Indian tribes is gaining strength daily. It's extending from the near to the more remote and will amply re requite us for the justice and friendship practiced towards them. Husbandry and household manufacture are advancing among them more rapidly than the southern and northern tribes. With circumstances of soil and climate, and one of the two great divisions of the Cherokee Nation have now under consideration to solicit the citizenship of the United States and to be identified with us in laws of government in such progressive manner as we shall think best." End quote. So that's, that's his policy towards um, Indians. He's He's excited. You can see in the, the text even how excited he is to hear that, that maybe the Cherokee will enter, enter their, their fold. And, and all this comes up with in, in the Indian addresses, which is what I want to move to to now. The first of these, uh, I, I don't have to say too much about it. It's uh, 1781. It's addressed to a leader of the Wabash and Illinois Indians. And essentially, it's, it's a call for an alliance. And it's... Uh, Now these are just fun to read because, and, and these aren't the only ones who do it, you know, these Europeans and Americans, when, when they had to address Indians in these days, they, they did so in the rhetorical style that, that was kind of developing for talking about them. So you get this language of, of um, for instance, at one point in this, this speech, this is after the French had entered the war on the side of the United States, which is our good friend and your father, the King of France, right? So there's these types of languages, or when he's trying, he's trying to plead them not to lie with the British, he says, the English, oh, no, sorry, we'll go back uh, a line. We are strong enough ourselves without wasting your blood in fighting our battles. The English, knowing this, have always been suing to the Indians to help them fight. We do not wish you to take up the hatchet. We love and esteem you. We wish you to multiply and be strong. The English, on the other hand, wish to see you and us cutting each other's throats. And when we're dead, they may take all of our land, end quote. Um, now, as you probably know, most of 
of the Indians in the frontier, the, the near frontier, allied with the British against the Americans. The British promised, of course, an end of settlement, and they had made this law in 1763 with the proclamation line. And so it made good sense for many of them to support. Among the Iroquois, I think only, only uh, the, what's it, the Oneida? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the Oneida allied with the, the Americans and the others all allied with the, with the British. Um, and they did pretty well in a lot of the frontier fighting with, with Americans and people on the frontier. Uh, just for that victory, for those victories, they of course lost everything because the British in the peace settlement of 1783 gave all the land uh, east of the Mississippi to the United States once the United States was recognized in that treaty. Um, so actually the opposite thing happened. It was the Americans who took all the land, of course, given to them by, by, by Great Britain in the peace treaty and then you know, piece by piece, you know, taken, taken from them through removal, through assimilation, through violence, and through other means. Uh, the whole history of American genocide is, of course, well known to all of you, I hope. Um, so, yeah, we can understand Jefferson, why he gave this, this speech during wartime in 1781. The war was dying down. Uh, the peace treaty was being ready. Um, and he didn't want frontier violence to exacerbate the, the peace process and all that. But uh, nonetheless, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in this document as there is in kind of all these. But the letter to Han, or the speech to Handsome Lake given in November 30, 1802 when he's president is I think one of the more fascinating uh, documents in this whole collection. And, and it was one I came across before when I read Death and Rebirth of the Seneca by a historian named Wallace many, many years ago. Uh, one of the better books about uh, the consequences of of the American Revolution on the Iroquois. Of course, Handsome Lake was uh, a spiritual leader within the Seneca and one of its major leaders in the post-revolutionary period. Uh, he's part of the, the, the rebirth of, in that title. And his main point, it's a rather short speech, but Jefferson's main argument here is you should civilize, you should become basically like American citizens. And this was like a cultural thing, and it was arguing kind of for a cultural revolution within the Seneca to make them more like whites. So he starts out, he's, at one point here, he's talking about land sales. And he says, you know, I guess there were some complaints by Hans Lake about land sales. And of course, what happened is, after, in the aftermath of the revolution, many people among the Seneca and the Iroquois overall were kind of put into a state of despair distress, poverty, economic dis displacement, a lot of settlers crossed over. And what one thing they did is they bought up, the, the settlers bought up the land from, the, from the, the Seneca, often at low prices, often scamming them or whatever. And, and Jefferson's saying, well, those were fair deals first. He starts out saying that. It's like, let's, let's not talk about those old deals. Let's, let's talk about the future. But he says, um, all was reported to be free and fair. The land for your property, the land, the right to sell is one of the rights of property. To forbid you to exercise that right would be a wrong to your nation. Nor do I think, brother, that the sale of lands is, under all circumstances, injurious to your people. While they depended on hunting, the more extensive the force around them, the more game they would yield. But going into a state of agriculture, it may be an, as an advantage to the society as to the individual who has more land than he can improve. To sell a part and lay out the money in stocks and implements of agriculture for the better improvement of the re residue. A little land well stocked and improved will yield more than a great deal without stock and improvement. 
I hope, therefore, that on further reflection, you'll see this transaction in a more favorable light, both as it concerns the interests of your nation and the exercise of that superintending care, which I am sincerely anxious to employ for your subsistence and happiness. Go on, then, brother, in the great reformation you have undertaken. Persuade our red brethren to be sober, to cultivate their lands, and for their women to spin and weave for their families. You will soon see your women and children well-fed and clothed, your men living happily in peace and plenty, and your numbers increasing from year to year. End quote. So he even gets into gender politics at the end of this little speech, saying, you know, the I mean, because, of course, traditional Indian gender division of labor was men were, like, hunting and fighting, women were, were farming. That's not the European way. That wasn't the American way, where men... You know, we already got to see the separate spheres ideology kind of creeping into this. Men should farm, be out in the public. Women should, you know, stay at home spinning or whatever, raising the kids. So he's actually even asking for a transformation in the gender relations. But a lot to unpack here, right? Like, you don't need all that land. So you don't feel bad selling that land to these settlers because you're going to be farmers anyway. You don't need the thousands of acres to hunt anymore. You just need your little farm. Pretty soon you'll be just like us. You'll be... You know, great American citizens, and you can, you know, apply industry and invest in all that stuff. It's, it's, um, yeah, certainly it's very condescending to, to the Seneca. But you know, Handsome Lake was someone who was eyeing transformation and 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 even kind of a cultural revolution within the Seneca himself. So um, I don't know if he's totally unsympathetic. We don't obviously don't have his response here. I have to go back to Wallace's book. To see exactly you know how he responded to this particular speech but you know it really again it encapsulates jefferson's attitude towards towards um these these indians now it's much the same in his 1803 speech to the choctaw nation now this is given about a year later um, but it's got the same line talking about you know the just the justice of selling land and actually kind of presenting in a good light the selling of, of land to whites. But he, he was more excited because the Choctaw seemed to be yeah, kind of moving on this path that he's approving of, as we saw in his, his the, the eighth annual address. He says to, uh, the, the quote, the brothers of the Choctaw Nation, who this is addressed to, I rejoice, brothers, to hear you propose to become cultivators of the land for the maintenance of your families. Be assured that you will support them better and with less labor by raising stock and bread and by spinning and weaving clothes and by hunting. A little land cultivated and a little labor will produce more provisions than the most successful hunt, and a woman will clothe more by spinning and weaving than a man by hunting. Compared with you, we are but as of yesterday in this land. You see how much more we have multiplied by industry and exercise of that reason which you possess in common with us? End quote. Now, obviously, he's not going to say this about black people, so there's definitely a difference in his racial attitude towards Indians and, and African-Americans, just to uh, repeat the obvious. But it's a lot of the same, same kind of language here about assimilate into the American way of life. You know, make, be part of, of the American frontier instead of a, a, a kind of an alternative culture to it. Um, the next address, uh, the next Indian address, 1806, so three years later after the one to the Choctaw, uh, January 10th. Why is he always doing these in the winter? Maybe that's when they, they came to Washington to visit. But this, uh, this is the same kind of stuff, but this is more focused on war and saying don't fight wars. But even there, he kind of throws in a line like, 
you know, instead of fighting wars, why don't you cultivate the land, cultivate the earth and avoid war? It's more honorable to repair a wrong than to persist in it. Tell your chiefs, your men, women, and children that I take them by the hand and hold it fast, that I am their father, wish them happiness and well-being, and I'm always ready to promote their good. And then the last of these is to the, the wolf and the people of the Mandan nation, one year after the one to the Cherokee. And again, it's a call for essentially assimilation. So these are all speeches that although their topics are diverse, I mean, I'm talking about the whole section now, the, the whole section on his speeches, diverse topics, everything from his view of republicanism to his um, to his reports on the Barbary pirates, to his reports on spending. There's a little bit there on, on investment and, and stuff. I skipped one about, about uh, I think, investing in gunboats, which is, is kind of an interesting thing. He seemed to have some problem with navies. And so he said, you know, we should invest in gunboats instead. And gunboats would have essentially be militia-style navies, almost like a Coast Guard uh, of cheap uh, militia-run boats rather than big naval vessels. Um, but so he talks on all these different topics that, of course, are part and parcel of, of our understanding of Jefferson's presidency. But underneath all of it, I think, is this imperial narrative. And, you know, not all imperialisms are the same, right? Some are informal, some are formal. But in the United States, it was the settler colonialism, to be sure. Um, but in the, in the dominant mode of that settler colonialism in the 19th century was, was removal, pushing Indian people to reservations, stealing their land by force or, 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 or other means, um, legal means, or in some cases illegal, illegal, illegal means, sometimes it's squatter, sometimes it's the government. But it is a settler colonialism, right? Um, Jefferson, though, he presented an alternative here, which in the end of the day wouldn't have perhaps, yeah, would have, would have been just as genocidal, would have just been more of a cultural genocide than a than a, than a literal one, I guess. That said, he never quite, you know, makes that line, like, be Americans, right? Instead, it's like, join us in citizenship, you know, becoming like us in terms of farming. Um, and also, we can't forget the importance of, of, of gender relations here, you know. He's, he's not married at this time, right? But he was married, so he's, he's, he's still kind of a conservative in respect to to gender relations, or you know, he very much has this idea of almost separate spheres, and that's reflected in these addresses as well. So there's interesting things to to say about these different speeches he gave. Um, as for the annual addresses, should they be given in in writing? I thought about this when I was reading this, and um, you know, obviously, I was somewhat aware that not all presidents gave their speeches. State of the Unions formally in front of front of Congress, you know, and I don't really watch them anymore. It's been years since I've, I've I've cared enough to watch any of these, but they, you know, they're they're so politicized, they're so kind of odious now, where you you know everything is crafted to get applause lines, and those applause lines are always so partisan, and it's you know half of the time you're seeing people stand up and the camera zooming on which you know representative is what face they're making after a certain line you know it, it's just so odious and gross um you know i i almost prefer this written form uh maybe we could go back to it although doubtful it's it's really become more of a, a speech for really talking to the people than talking to congress about serious proposals right 
Of course, the executive branch now talks to Congress all the time. Uh, this is coming from a day when there was kind of a more of a vision of a, of a deeper separation of powers, I suppose. And so they kind of limit communication. Now, of course, the executive and legislative brands are, not, are negotiating all the time. So it does become more of a political stunt than a real um, moment of dialogue between the branches of government. Uh, that said, I don't know, they're not, they're not bad. I, I just find these annual messages a little bit on the dull side. I, I kind of had to, at some points, I just scan them for like good stuff, the yummy stuff. Um, but anyways, uh, in the next episode, I'll kind of finish up these other assorted documents. It's a section called miscellany, so it really is assorted documents. Uh, the, the heart of this is the annas, which are sort of his like his memoirs. I think they were put together in 18, 1806. It's like three volumes of just documents he threw together, um, bound together documents from the Secretary of State and, and the presidency. And there's some nice moments in there. So we'll quickly go through the miscellany. And then after that episode, we'll jump into the letters and, and we'll uh, have a lot of fun looking at the, the best of these letters and the most interesting of them. So, um, as always, thanks for, for listening. Uh, please leave your own thoughts about Jefferson's speeches, particularly his Indian speeches, if you've read them or you've heard about them. Um, let me know what you think about them below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll be back next time with uh, a little bit, some more thoughts about Jefferson's career from the perspective of, of various assorted documents that, that he wrote.